Well, good morning. If if you're new, I don't think any, I don't know if anybody's here that I haven't met, but maybe uh, my name is Dave Dorst. I'm the associate pastor, and uh, Dr. Dave is in Pittsburgh baptizing one of his grandsons, and then he's off next week too. And James Murphy's going to be preaching for us. But uh, I think everybody, the whole church staff, will be here in August, and we're really looking forward as. Pat talked about Frank Wong coming on staff. So, good things coming up. Uh, If you have your uh, sermon outline in the bulletin, um, you kind of are picking up the theme already of this morning from what Pat prayed about and what we just sang. And, And I was reminded of when I was a teenager, music was very important to me. Uh, I think my parents would say it was pretty all-consuming. Um, as much as I tried to be somewhat well-rounded, I, I, I mean, I got good, decent grades, I had friends, I was involved in church and youth group, those things. But let me tell you, what really got me excited was music. And a lot of it was 80s hard rock and heavy metal. But I really appreciated a wide variety of music, and I had a Really large record for collection for a kid that didn't have a job. So um, I played guitar all the time with my brother, and, and I, I would write out songs and chords by hand, not ones I wrote, like everybody else's songs, because we didn't have computers, right? So I just wrote it all down, and that's why I'd be up all night. And I had always had music playing in my room. Um, I would record music videos on MTV, and we had two VCRs hooked up so I could, like, double tape them and, and make it greatest. Anyways, you wouldn't get that, but it was fun for me. Um, all of my disposable income at that time went to records, concerts, band t-shirts, guitars, all that. It was, it was consuming. Um, but by the end of my junior year of high school, uh, the Lord was really working on me, on my heart, on my life. Much longer story, that's the, kind of my testimony I want to get into. But just to say that uh, a number of things came together to urge me to live my faith. I mean, I was a believer since I was a kid, but to really live it out in an open, more honest way. Um, and I started to see that music had a real hold on my life. And that it, it maybe was an idol that was more important to God. And so... I did what a lot of kids were being told by their youth pastors at the time to do. Maybe not for the same reason. Um, But I went and I burned my whole record collection. Nobody told me to. I just decided that 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 was how I needed to break music's hold on my life. I'm not saying that that was a great idea. In fact, my son is very mad at me retroactively uh, for doing that. He's always saying, man... Did you burn metallic albums, really? Yep, sorry, buddy. Um, But I I figured that was how I would get out from under music's hold on my life. And today's text, Exodus chapter 32, records one of the most memorable scenes in the Old Testament, a time when Israel showed that it was prone to wander and to 
worship idols. Their idolatry leads to some pretty serious consequences. And in the middle of it all, Moses has no choice but to destroy the idol and point them back to the true and living God. So as we uh, turn to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32 or look at your outline, uh, let's open this time in prayer. Almighty, eternal, and merciful God, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. Open and illuminate our minds that we may purely and perfectly understand your word and that our lives may be conformed to what we have rightly understood, that in nothing we may be displeasing to you. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. As you look at the first six verses in this passage, you'll read where the people make their own God. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters. Bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Can we just pause and reflect on how ridiculous this whole scene is. I mean, Pat already kind of referred to that, just the, the irony of what's happening, the sheer offensive audacity of the people. The Israelites have recently committed themselves to doing everything that the Lord commanded. Think back, Exodus 40, 24, 7 says, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. They pledge themselves to that. The very first commandment says, You shall have no other gods before me. Second, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them, serve them. So what do they do now that they've pledged themselves to strict obedience? They make a carved image and name it as their God. They know exactly who got them out of Egypt. It's, it's only been a matter of months. We're not talking decades or generations removed to where they would truly forget who brought them out of Egypt. It was God who brought all ten plagues that forced Pharaoh's hand to release them. Then miraculously, God got them through the Red Sea and swallowed up the Egyptian army. But look at verse 4. The people, they've now decided that this God that they just made is the God that brought them out of Egypt. Think of the time. They were slaves for hundreds of years. 
And now Moses is gone for 40 days. And they become so impatient that they decide to take things into their own hands. The gold that they pull out of their ears was most likely meant for what? Building the tabernacle. Rather than redemptively using it for the worship of the true God, they waste it building a false god. And then there's the ringleader, Aaron, right? We've been studying the, all the instructions for the priests and how Aaron and his sons are going to be uh, ordained and the elaborate explanations of what they'll wear and how they'll purify themselves. But before any of that happens, he gives in to the demands of the people. He oversees the idolatry. He, he carves it himself. The people are so blinded by fear and impatience that they make this false idol that they know can't do anything. And like most of these wilderness episodes, I think right they're looking back to Egypt. They mimic Egypt with their false nature gods, even though their lives in Egypt were, were miserable. And God has freed them from that, is taking them to a wonderful land. They will call their own. Now, we, we should marvel at this. We, we can laugh at them. We can be bewildered by their lack of faith and the sheer audacity of the Israelites to build this false god right in the very camp where God has led them. And Moses is going to return, but you can assume you would never do the same thing, right? Pat's already asked us to think about our idols. We can, we can feel good that maybe we haven't ever fashioned an idol to worship, to set up. But the book of Romans reminds us, hey, we have the new nature. We have the new man, the new self, but the old self. The old man is waiting to come back. If you've thought, I'm a Christian saved by grace, I would never fall into idolatry like that and gross sin like the Israelites, I think you're deceiving yourself. And it's a lot more subtle than we think. We have, I think we have the same two basic instincts that all people have, that they had. One is to make a God in the form that we'll accept. And number two, to turn from the true God to worship lesser gods. So, Questions to ask yourself. Number one, am I, am I serving the true and living God in the way he's revealed himself in the scriptures? Or am I fashioning my own God out of what makes me feel good? What I think will make me successful and safe. And number two, what, what idols am I bowing down to in my life? Good and bad things that I put before God and center my life on. Isaiah 46, 6 and 7. It's in your outline. You can turn there. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. 
if one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. The great thing about an idol is that it doesn't demand anything of us, right? It doesn't challenge us. It doesn't call us to repent. Amazingly, it always agrees with us. We can make it look and say whatever we want it to. It's pretty tempting. But the bad news is that whatever we bow down to becomes our master, becomes what we chain our life to, and an idol can't save us. It can't forgive our sins, can't change our hearts, can't comfort us in our grief or love us with an everlasting love. Tim Keller has a book called Counterfeit Gods, and he has a great definition of what God, false gods, idols are. Anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family, children, or career and critical claim, or saving face, or social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in the Christian ministry. That about captures it. What are our counterfeit gods? What do you care about so deeply that it takes the central place in your heart, unseating the place that God should occupy? My idol's not really music anymore, I don't think. It's still important to me, but God's sort of redemptively used it, I think. But I have a deeper idol, people's opinion of me. That is really important to me. I hate to admit, I recognize that I make a lot of decisions so that I can keep people thinking well of me. It's the strong cause I, I recognize, the root of why I work hard, why I serve others, why I make my life look good, check all the boxes. I think the Lord is working in my life to root that out slowly. But we need to identify our idols. I'm going to give you time for that later. But there's also a sense in which all of our sin problems are worship problems. Right? We're worshiping the wrong thing. When we take our eyes off of worshiping and pleasing the Lord, we are led into every kind of sin. Love of money and, and success and career is the, probably the easiest that's an easy thing to see people worshiping. But a pornography problem is a worship problem. So is anger. Anything. We're right in the middle of two political conventions. A good reminder that we can trust in our leaders or our political party so much that they take the place of God. I mean, this year's 
election season may be curing a lot of people of that particular idol. I don't know. Maybe that's a good thing. Or it may be digging us deeper to look for a true political savior. I don't know. There's a lot more we could talk about in this area. I actually dropped a lot of illustrations for the sake of time. Um, but I'd encourage you to, to talk about idolatry with people closest to you. Maybe your accountability group, your, your family, close friends, whoever. But let's move on to the rest of the passage. Uh, now that the idolatry has happened, the next eight verses show God ready to punish the people. But giving a chance for Moses to mediate for the people. Verses 7 through 14. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. It's an interesting section. There's a sense that the Israelites are getting disowned. Did you listen carefully? In verse 7, the Lord tells Moses, Your people, whom you brought up out of the land. But then in verse 11, Moses says, Your people, whom you brought up out of the land. Hot potato, it's yours, not mine. Nobody wants to claim these lousy sinners. And God is threatening to bring this whole Israel as my chosen people experiment to an end. More of an experiment, but in verse 10, he threatens to consume them. The Hebrew word kala is absolute destruction. And he would have been completely justified. It's interesting that he tells Moses, let me alone. That my, my, my wrath may burn, right? I may consume them. And then he says that I may make a great nation of you. Perhaps it's only, he's going to start over with Moses somehow. It sounds like he's saying, go away. Moses, and don't try to talk me out of this, right? But Philip Rikens and several other commentators I read argue that what he's actually saying is, if you don't intercede for this people, I'm going to wipe them out. In other words, he's actually inviting Moses to go to bat 
for the people. So Moses steps up and boldly petitions the Lord to relent. Moses is Israel's mediator, the role that God has assigned him. Right? He's standing in the gap for his people, pleading with God not to destroy them. Hear how uh, Psalm 106, 19 through 23 describes it. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. So Moses' message, his, his pleading here, is basically, you've brought your people this far. Are you going to destroy them after all you've done? Are you going to give their enemies a chance to question you, to mock you? And then he reminds them of the great covenant, right? That's what he's talking about when he references Abraham, Isaac, Israel, Jacob, uh, promises that their descendants would inherit a great land. I mean, that's what's been driving the biblical narrative, this covenant that well, I'm going to get you, you know, it started with Abraham. Your descendants will inherit the land. God says, or Moses says, are you just going to drop that? Are you just going to forget that? Are you going to derail things? Um. But God did not forget his covenant. He did not get carried away in his anger. The phrase, the Lord changed his mind or relented, is used throughout the Bible to simply mean that the announced course of action is not going to happen. God was not changing his plans. Moses was carrying out God's plans. But because the Lord relented doesn't mean that this story is over, though. The people are still going to be confronted and held responsible. So the next ten verses show Moses' anger and Aaron's excuse, starting at verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he, Moses, said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought them, brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. 
So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and threw it into the fire and out came this calf. So here's Moses with the two tablets of the testimony coming down the mountain. And and even though he's been mediating, standing in the gap for his people, when he actually sees their idolatry and their revelry, his anger burned hot. Very similar to the Lord's anger burning hot. And listen, the the description of what the Israelites are doing, I mean, the, the calf is built, but uh, the actions afterwards, it's, it's very uh, vague in the description. It's very polite. They ate, drank, and rose up to play. There's singing and dancing, and later it says the people had broken loose. You don't get a real feel for what uh, every commentator I read said that they, in the Hebrew, you, you understand, it implies so much more, that this was a wild, drunk party with people imitating the sexual worship practices of the Egyptians and other pagan nations. So Moses might have broken the the tablets because he was angry. That's part of it. But this is also a very symbolic action, right? That the people have broken the covenant already. And so he's going to break the written covenant. You want to break commandments, he's saying, I'll show you how to break commandments, right? Smashes them. And, and then after he destroys the calf, he makes the people drink it, right? The, he grinds it into powder and somehow forces them to drink it. And I think this is symbolic action, too, that they need to swallow their ungodliness, taste the bitterness of what their sin has brought. Moses reminds us that Our idols are not to be tolerated. They're to be destroyed. He does that. Aaron reminds us that our spiritual leaders should steer us away from our sin, not give in and allow it to happen. Right? Aaron was, at this point, kind of the second in command. But with Moses gone, he utterly fails in his spiritual leadership. He was easily persuaded to make the calf for the people. Now, he's confronted. Does he confess his sins? No. Right? What we get is a lot of blame shifting, spin on what he did. You know, these people, they're evil. They made me do it. And then then he blames the fire, right? I threw it in there and now popped his calf. Doesn't, Doesn't mention the fact that he carved it himself. And Exodus here doesn't mention God's specific anger toward Aaron, but Deuteronomy 9 said that God was ready to destroy him. Moses had to pray to save his life. God forbid that you have spiritual leaders, that we have spiritual leaders who tolerate or encourage grievous sin. But Aaron is not put to death, and the whole of the Israelite community is is not destroyed here. But this great of a sin cannot be overlooked completely. So that the last 11 verses record what the judgment on this sin actually is. So picking up in verse 25 through the end of the chapter. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies... 
Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Well, it doesn't look like the people are at all ready to repent, right? They're rioting. The text says they've broken loose. There was chaos. and So not only does the Lord blot out the names of those who had sinned against them. I think that's the record of who would be going to the promised land. It doesn't exactly say. But he also sends a plague on them, it says at the end. But before that, the most immediate, the most difficult to understand, Moses calls the faithful men, ends up being the Levites, to his side and sends them on a killing mission. Right? Who is on the Lord's side? Choose. So they go through the camp, and they end up killing 3,000 men, which sounds like a large number and is. But of the total population of the camp, it's probably a small fraction, under 1%. But most likely, these were the unrepentant or the ringleaders of what had happened, the ones who, if they were left alive, would continue to rebel against the Lord. Not that Israel gets its act together completely. But the Levites choose God over men, even if Aaron didn't. It's a, a gruesome task, putting the Lord's judgment into action. It's one that we will never be called to do, right, in the new covenant. It's, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. We're called to put sin, sin to death inside of us. Right? And 1 Corinthians 10, 6 and 7 reminds us these things took place as examples for us. That we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. If you learn nothing else from this passage, learn this. Idolatry, putting another God before the true God, is a most serious offense 
to the Lord. I remember one of our elders was a businessman, and he was traveling, and they were working on a new deal with a company in a different land. And they were asked, he was asked to go and light a candle to a foreign god. I, I don't remember all the specifics, but I just remember being struck because he said, you know, there were other guys in my company, other Christians, I think, who did that, but I could not do it. And I had to tell my people who translated it, told their people, my God is a jealous God. He will not allow me to worship other gods, even in this maybe meaningless act. Idolatry is as grievous to the Lord as adultery is, a betrayal of a spouse. The Lord is a jealous God. We are to have no other gods before him. Your commitment to the God of the Bible cannot be mixed with the nice parts of other religions and faiths. God wants an undivided commitment from us. And he may discipline us, those he loves, to break their love of idols or other gods. Now this whole historical account, as we said, is written for our example, for us to understand. It's written to remind us of important things, that we have an inclination to turn from the true God to false gods, that there are consequences of that sin. But it also points to the actions of the one who mediates on our behalf. Because all of these things have beautiful parallels in our lives. I have sinned against God and turned to lesser false gods of my own making. You have sinned against God and turned to lesser gods of your own making. And we're not faithful and we're not trusting. God is up on his holy mountain. We are down on earth. And like the Israelites, we are floundering in the folly of our rebellion against God. And sin deserves death. And yet... God does not end our lives immediately. He does not blot out our name, names from his book because we have a mediator who intercedes for us. It's a mediator that God himself has appointed. And this mediator doesn't intercede for us because we deserve it. No, he interceded when we were enemies, when we were dead set. On sinning. He doesn't intercede because he feels like we're suddenly sorry enough or are starting to fix our flaws enough. He doesn't save us for anything based on us or anything we do. He interceded because he was the only one who could. He died on a cross to take the penalty that all our sins deserve. 1 John 2 one and two says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Moses took the people in verse, told the people in verse 30 that he was going to make an atonement for them. Do you remember that? And when he got before the Lord in verse 32, you remember what he prom- what he what he asked of the Lord? He asked to take their punishment. To take the sins of the people, the penalty. To have his name blotted out of God's book. 
instead of them. But God cannot accept Moses as a substitute for them, right? He's not an acceptable substitute because he has his own sin to atone for. But Jesus is greater than Moses, the perfect substitute who would take the penalty for his people. And he saves us from God's wrath. In a sense, he was blotted out for a time on the cross, separated from the Father. And he saves us. And he continues to call us his chosen people, leading us to the promised land. That is the great, glorious message of the gospel. Amen. Now, before I close in prayer, I want you to just pray quietly. And I want you to think about your idols. Ask the Lord to help you understand what they are and give you strength to stop bowing to them and throwing, throw them down, destroy them. Let's pray that.